Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we're looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and it's the day you've all been waiting for. It's Blue Beam Day! <laughs> Here it is. Today we are talking about Minute 103, which begins with Tony incinerating a few pedestrians and ends with Tony incinerating a few Tatari. <laughs> Back on the show, we have that film critic so Ewan Graff. I have to call that out. You can do the introduction later, but that's the worst yeah. thing you've ever said. Okay, you may continue. You're the worst. That was disgusting. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. We'll mitigate that later. I'm just saying, have a little decorum, man. Hey, I just say it like I see it. Oh. That's right. Uh, we have film critic Ewan Graff from the Quiet on Set podcast joining us again. Hello, Ewan. <laughs> hey, guys. I actually agree with you, Andy. Um, <laughs> that was my first point as well. Those people are not alive. <laughs> they are not alive. They're grilled. I mean, what? At least, uh, like, okay. for crying out loud, at least somebody turns to jelly in this minute. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah following up on yesterday's comments. It's, I mean, it's a funny, uh, first of all, uh, aside from getting incinerated, which definitely I want to talk about, but the idea of where Tony falls, like his, uh, the top of his building, it's kind of, uh, it's tucked in from the sidewalk. It's not directly over the sidewalk. So the fact that he falls and kind of, instead of dropping directly down, somehow he keeps kind of moving farther and farther away from the building as he falls to the point where he's over the sidewalk. It's, it's, it's kind of, funky like if you see the shot of his pov as he gets the mask on he's coming directly down on top of like that group of four and then it cuts to his handbrakes and you see that okay he's coming below the tower it cuts to the very next shot and that is like oh hold on he was actually way back over the top of the building that they're next to like he shouldn't even be over these people it's it's constructed in a way where I think that the filmmakers are really just trying to get away with it in a way to just put these people's lives in danger. <laughs> yeah, but we don't get to see, like, flesh flaying off of their skulls. No! Uh, so unfortunately there's a, not. some tape. <laughs> unfortunately right. not! Okay! Who is here to play? Bring the <laughs> flesh flaying! <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see it uh, take from, uh, what's, what's it called, the YouTube channel, Corridor Digital. They sometimes do like, oh, yeah. the R-rated version of this. And just do this Oh, right. I think that's, but I think it, it wants to focus on that, uh, just close up shot of Tony and then showing his point of view. And then it just doesn't match probably what they shot here with the plate that they use shooting up, uh, at the Stark Tower and probably just a slight mismatch there with uh, something in the direction. But, uh, I mean, just more people to grill at the end of the day. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, plus let's let's also uh, remember that it's not just Tony falling. There are thousands of shards of glass also falling with him. Yeah. And what I'd like to think happens is as he hits his thrusters, his his palm thrusters, and like blasts down toward these people, that basically he melts that glass. And <laughs> it's a breeze of like, sand that comes down on them. <laughs> yeah, it's just it, it just like, but it penetrates their bodies. Like I think these people are just riddled with tiny holes from all the melted uh, shards, you know, of flaming yes. hot glass. Yeah. That's the origin of go. the yeah. Sandman and the MC. Terrible, just terrible, terrible yeah. stuff. Sand people. <laughs> yeah. People, God. Uh, all right. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a 
it's an interesting way to kind of kick things off. And, you know, I, su- I suppose in the scope of things, you know, Tony's energy from his thrusters is supposed to be completely neutral. It's supposed to be cool. It's not actually hot and all this stuff. But, I mean, even if that's the case, like, there is so much dust and smoke and particles that he kicks up that, I mean, at the very least, these people have some serious uh, pieces of, of things stuck in their eyes. Now. Yeah, right at second five, you have him do his flip where his feet take over the thrust, and somebody is legit blown out of frame by yeah, those right. Like, that is, there is trauma, head trauma at a minimum from that shot. I mean, there's even dust on the lens uh, at that point. Yeah, right, right, right. So, right. Yeah, interesting breaking of the fourth wall here. Let's just, let's put some dirt on the lens yeah. through this. And, yeah. and further convince everybody that damage done in real life is damage do- or done in the movie is damage done in real life. Like, of course, that person is thrown to the ground and their skull is cracked open. This is the worst minute of the whole. This is a horror minute. <laughs> What's worse, this minute or the minute in Captain America where the Hydra soldier gets dropped through the uh, the <laughs> propeller of the of the drop drop ship? I think that minute because of Red Mist. We don't actually get red mist in this movie. <laughs> oh, opportunity missed. But I will say, I do love what we get to see of the suit, like some of the articulation of the suit and the way the flaps on the back start to open up. Like, that's really cool. And it pays off seconds later in this very same minute when he's flying up and you see there are new thrusters on his back, which I think are just really cool. There's some really cool design touches to this stuff. Well, and just even the reveal. I mean, this this is it's a it is kind of a fun reveal because we're seeing the the Mark Seven fitting itself to his body, and we're kind of getting the whole thing as the helmet kind of pieces itself on and comes over his head. Though we cut to that great POV as we see the mask drop in, we see the eye slits, and then the HUD starts up and it tracks everything that's going on below him before we cut to him. And it's, you know, in the scope of finding a unique way to kind of give us the new suit, I actually really like that we cut to the mask and the POV at that particular minute. I was actually wondering, because we do get that, like, slide over, and it's just those two little eye slits that he sees through. Is it like, for for a short little bit, he doesn't see anything? And then once the visor is down, there's actually like something else that he manages to see a bit of a more wider range. Because like from his POV, he technically is not really seeing anything through those two uh, eye eye slits that that he just got to watch. Yeah, until, right, exactly. Until the HUD starts up, yeah. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing. Like the real problem if uh, the tech starts like i mean we get this very briefly in the very first iron man when he's trying to see how high he can go and the whole thing freezes up and he falls back and it takes a minute to kind of get things back online and he really can't see anything because the the hud's completely shut down like this is exactly that moment like there's just that brief second where you get a sense of what you actually get if if the hud doesn't boot up and it's like nope you're really not going to be able to see much out of this thing it's not designed for that it actually makes it all the more scary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just from a logic standpoint, if, if if something is like right right next to your eye, you're probably not really seeing anything through it unless right, the thing right. you're looking at right in front of you is displaying it overall. But it wouldn't make sense for his eyes to, to light up then. No. I, you know, I always struggle with the fact that there's, I don't know, an inch maybe between his eye and the the actual inside of the mask itself. And then to think that the HUD somehow projects so much information that he's able to actually see and register and focus on always kind of 
you know, makes me scratch my head a little bit. But it's one of those things that you just kind of roll with in the movie and go, okay, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Uh, all right. So then we have Tony fly back up to the top of the tower. And two things. Loki is there and he's watching because we cut to Loki looking down and then he looks up to where Tony is. My first issue that I have here is, you know, we, we have Tony speaking off camera and Loki look up like Tony just got there. And then we cut <laughs> and Tony's not there yet and then flies up. So it does make me, it's just like the lining up of those two shots. I'm like, yeah, doesn't quite work, but it's, it's all right. Yeah. You're right. I'm going back and forth, and this would be a funny gif. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's like a weird yo-yo. Yeah, like Tony's just not quite there yet. What are you looking at, Loki? Maybe he's just looking at the actual, like, you know, extra Avenger, the Empire State Building, then in the background. Or, or, yeah, the Chrysler Building, yeah. <laughs> oh, the Chrysler yeah. Building? Oh, no, no, I, I'm kidding. It's so prominently <laughs> featured. I thought it was like, you know, a representative for the spirit of, of New York, but I, I messed it up with the names there. But <laughs> Oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. I, I think that the, it's fair to say the Chrysler Building yeah. is probably as prominent and recognizable for New York as the Empire State Building. I totally, I would, I would support that. Yeah. The next uh, note, though, that I have is this is where Tony flies up and he delivers this line. Uh, which always makes me chuckle a little bit. He says, uh, and there's one other person you pissed off. His name is Phil. And I always go to Fight Club, and I just want him to say his name was Robert Paulson. I just <laughs> want that so bad in this moment because I just, <laughs> it's just like, it feels so much like he's meant to say that right here. When he's watching it, do you like mouth those words when you're watching this movie? His name is Robert Paulson. Yeah, I totally do. Uh, Every time. I say that every time. It's one of those things. Like, it comes up, and I was like, his name is Robert Paulson. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) That's weird. I mean, am I the only one? Is that something that either of you ever thought of at this moment? Not until until just now. And (laughs) possibly never again. (laughs) I thought that Loki's reaction would be like, who? And that's the the extent of like my comedic <laughs> sense. Like, oh yeah, that's that would be kind of funny. Um, that would be funny oh, because is that his name? Yeah. That's a really great point. Like, his name is Phil. Why did I piss off Phil? <laughs> Was he? And, and who is Phil again? Right. I didn't pay for a hot dog. Was that Phil? <laughs> like, there's yeah, there's totally uh, there, there's room for that. Yeah, he could run down like the guy with the eye, the guy with the yeah. yeah. Was he the guy in Twitter? No, not him. Who else? Yeah, who is who is Phil? Phil? Which is funny because you think about that. Like, would he? Would Clint have even told him? It's assuming that Clint gave him all the information on everybody at Shield, including Agent Coulson. Would he have called him Phil, or would he have said, "Yeah"? And then there's Agent Coulson, blah blah blah. Like, why is Phil the name? Like, it's it's honestly, it really becomes Phil just because of the Phil joke that we have, kind of starting at the beginning of this film, where. Tony is now jealous that Pepper is calling him Phil. And ever since then, that's all he can think of is like, I want to be Phil's best friend, too. But, you know, actually, you just made it OK for me, right? That I thought it was weird. <laughs> and then you ju- you justified it. And now it's totally justified that it's I think it's OK that he this is the first time he's using Phil in not a suspicious uh, way. Right. And and also using Phil for a guy like Tony, who's not part of the military industrial establishment, 
it feels totally right for him to be saying Phil instead of Agent Coulson, right? There's there's a sense of familiarity that he's there for. So all of a sudden, this became my favorite minute, uh, unironically, <laughs> and I owe it to you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> But then if he said his name was Agent Coulson, then it would feel so much more like Robert Paulson. I almost would oh. love that all the more. His oh. name was Agent Coulson. And then you would have the whole group. It would cut to all the team on the helicarrier, yes. and they would all be saying in unison, his name, his name was, was Agent, Agent Coulson. Coulson. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I don't understand what you're going for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying uh, I don't get it. I am get the joke. I'm saying it's not a great one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, well i'll i'll accept that i'll, I'll workshop accept that. it yeah, we need yeah. to workshop it <laughs> okay well tony blasts loki here we know that his blasters uh can hit and hurt loki we saw it in stuttgart as he knocked uh loki back there and same thing here he kind of blasts him back and loki takes it in the chest and goes flying back dropping the scepter and um yeah we'll we'll come back to him in a bit but well, wait a minute. I just have to say something here, because this is his second 13 when he raises his arm and blasts Loki back. How far do you think they are between each other, Loki and Iron Man at this point? Um, 20 feet. How far do you think Tony was when he did his flip at the bottom of the building over the pedestrians? <laughs> that's a different type of that's that's not propellant. <laughs> this is a blast. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's shifted to weapons mode. Oh, right, he's in. We- you're right. I, you're, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's the part. <laughs> the other one was just glowy orange. Here we get sparks. Yeah, so it's clearly different. <laughs> Obviously, it is clearly weapons yeah. mode. Okay. Why does it spark when it hits Loki? That is funny. Like, is it? Uh, yeah, it's like a little uh, sparkler goes off on his chest. I wonder if it's just igniting. I mean, it even ignites out of his hand. Like, this is. Uh, I'm trying to. Is this a Mark Seven thing? Did the other ones sparkle as much as these? Maybe he's in sparkle mode now. Oh, sparkle mode, Andy. <laughs> Jarvis, go sparkle mode. Yes, I can hear it. <laughs> I'm sure that's something he said. I'm sure. There is something uh, combustible about Loki. And the question is, from a continuity perspective, because at at 14, we do see remnants of sparkle mode on Loki's uh, fine Asgardian leather goods. And I wonder if I've never looked before, but I wonder if we can see the the remains of sparkle mode throughout the rest of the movie. Something tells me we can't. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say they're probably not saying that it actually singed his suit. And actually, he's going to change clothes here soon anyway. Yeah, that's right. He's or not change, change clothes. clothes. He'll, he'll, he'll fancy himself up with his magic, get yeah, his helmet back. His and, all that good stuff. and that probably erases any remnant of sparkle mode. No, magic definitely does. Yeah, it's yeah. Command C mm-hmm. just doing back whatever damage was done. <laughs> Command C. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. All right. Blue beam. So uh so Selvig's Tesseract machine up on the roof finally starts working, spins itself up, and pow, the tropey blue beam shoots up into the sky, and we start seeing something that looks a lot like our, our show art this season, Pete. Ah. It's the little hole opening up in the sky, and Tony, of course, sees it as well. And the Chitari do, too. 
my first question here, uh, aside from the fact that I love, I actually really like that shot in the dark, and you just see kind of like, I don't know what the purple glowy things on the Chitari are, but it's cool as they reveal the Chitari and then they take off. But what have the Chitari been doing all this time? Like, what is there like a craft service table yeah. that they Space. go have snacks at while they're waiting? Are they smokers? Do they like take smoke breaks? Or are they just have they been sitting on their chariots all this time just waiting for this hole to flip and open up? In the middle of space. Yeah, they're right, exactly. They don't I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm equipped to litigate this. I think they are just hanging out in space, waiting for the blue beam <laughs> to open up on their side. I mean, they're essentially drones, right? At the end of the day, so yeah, I don't know how <laughs> how much of a smoke break they need in between, just like waiting. <laughs> <laughs> They, yeah, they don't apparently care. I guess the Chitari, according to the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki, the Chitari are a sentient species of cybernetically enhanced beings operating under a hive mind intelligence. Ah, so an e-cigarette then. <laughs> the e-cigarettes, <laughs> right. right. Vapes. <laughs> yeah. oh I gosh, did not know perfect. any of that. Do you think that makes it? Do you, do you think that helps your understanding of this version of the Chitari and what they're capable of doing, knowing that they're e-cigarettes? <laughs> I mean, to get smoked. Yeah. So. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know. I yeah. wonder because, you know, the Chitari has been the Chitari. Uh, it's it's been a, a long and winding road getting the Chitari from screen to this or from the pages of the books, which aren't this chitari uh to this version of the chitari the mindless uh, drone army and i don't know that i needed much more to to help me understand what they're capable of but it is a question that always comes up when i watch this movie so they can just be in space then and then also fly around in the gravity of earth without any change in anything that's all this is again a, a the fantasy side of the story where suddenly we really leave a lot of the reality behind. I mean, remember, we've already had the other and apparently Thanos hanging out on an asteroid again in the middle of space, uh, not to mention Asgard, which, you know, kind of is just seems to be floating there, especially when they walk out to the end of the Rainbow Bridge out to Heimdall's uh, observatory. It's like... Asgard, they've got right. They've got just waterfall rivers that go into waterfalls that go nowhere. Right, like those waterfalls they, yeah, go they, into space. It is right. Asgard is the least environmentally conscious place in the MCU. They just waste water all the time. Is it a waste though? If they're just sending it out into space, like maybe it's helping somebody. It's helping. Nobody. Maybe it's maybe it's part this, of an entire uh, micro uh, system that lives in space that thrives on the frozen. <laughs> Uh, Asgardian water. Like the ego plankton of a planet that just absorbs the water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> opens like a Pac-Man his mouth to just yeah. grab the water. <laughs> just drinking water. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I digress. Uh, but uh, but this is, uh, we do reveal the Chitauri here on their chariots. Uh, they will be flying around uh, very shortly. Before they do... Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about blue beams and blue beam tropes. Um, how does this, as kind of a, a trope, especially 
that really kind of around this time um, was quite prevalent in films. Does it, uh, do you have any issues with this? Does it work okay as a trope? Issues with the blue beam trope. And my, I guess my issue is it just feels like it's, it's, you know, once it's become a trope, it's, it gets, it's like, oh, okay. It's of course it's a blue beam. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with the blue beam here in isolation. It's that there are so many of these pillars of lights that we see in movies, and it's everywhere, movies and TV and books and comics, like, beams of light are important. And like, I wonder what it is that really connected with the cultural gestalt of creators of science fiction and fantasy, where they landed on on this pillar of light concept as the thing that is going to represent so much transformation at the level of uh, celestial happening. I think on on this side, to make the argument for the Avengers, I think here, because isn't it based on the Tesseract, so the space stone to open up the portal, portal it actually makes kind of sense. And I feel like in a lot of other movies, it's just like the space portal to create conflict. And here, I guess that is a bit more established that it makes sense that this is what it's used for. That's its purpose. Uh, so I don't mind it as much, but as a trope, it gets... It feels really cheap in a way to like have conflict introduced really quickly as like a third act climax. And I, I guess it's just like not really that original to bring in conflict. But at the end of the day, I think we just want to see the heroes fight towards the end of the movie. So that's why like most of the Avengers films kind of lead into that direction with, with a big army that, yeah, the Avengers have to fight. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. I guess there is the element of this blue beam. I mean, we, we saw it at the beginning of the film. It was just horizontal because of the positioning of the machine, but it really was designed to blast a beam to a certain point and open up a portal. Here, we just happen to have it vertical now instead of horizontal. I suppose it didn't really matter what direction. I mean, to a certain extent, I suppose it would have made more sense to be horizontal, even though it is on the top of the building, because when these uh, Chitari come flying through, ostensibly they're, I mean, I know it's space, but let's just say they're horizontal in space, and they fly through a hole, and suddenly they're now flying straight down toward the planet. And I suppose there's an element of confusion when you come through a hole, and you think you're going one way, but you're like, oh, I'm actually falling. Are they getting pulled in from gravity? Or like, how's that? When are they, When is the gravitational force coming in? Like, I, there's, yeah, there's like a weird um, shimmer as they kind of first go through yeah. the the uh, the window, and I think that when they cut through that shimmer, suddenly they probably make that shift of going from we're flying through space and there's no gravity to suddenly, oh crap! Now we're just you know maybe we should turn these engines off and you know try you know angle angle ourselves so we're not just plummeting straight to Earth. So that's what you're saying that the that the hole should have come somewhere <laughs> over London, and then they just fly over it. And across the so that they're coming in parallel to New York City. No, it's not. But it's not even that high. See, it's like yeah. I, it doesn't have to be London. I mean, I think <laughs> I think if they pointed it horizontally based on the the runway that we saw earlier. I mean, I know that was probably only a couple hundred feet. But here, I, it certainly doesn't even seem like a mile. It seems like maybe it's a half mile at most that this thing reaches. Well, this is my question, though, because the like, what is it hitting? 
right? What is the target of the pillar of light blue beam? Is it hitting the atmosphere? Is it or is it something that Selvig is controlling saying, I just want it to go and then stop and do its energy work at a height that is predetermined by me, the, the physicist? I'm not even sure he predetermines it. I think it's just something having to do with the Tesseract, the Iridium, the machine. Uh, just like we saw earlier in the film, it went down to the end of the runway. And here, it's probably just something they said, it's going to go up a ways, but it doesn't have to go super high. Like, it just, I don't know, it doesn't seem like there's but any, you, but you're it feels very arbitrary. The, you're feeling that you're referring to the runway, the very beginning of the movie, right? Where they, in Correct. the thing. But I thought at the, in the runway, there was a platform with some other mechanism, like the mechanism caught the beam. No, it was just. It was, remember, it just, it feels weirdly like, why is there a runway here? Yeah, there's an arbitrary runway here. Oh, it happens to be because that's how far this beam shoots, and that's where it's going to open up this door and Loki's going to come through. Yeah. That felt very arbitrary, just like this feels very arbitrary. It's going to shoot up to, uh, up a little bit into the air, but then it's just going to open up a portal. It could have been five feet, honestly. Like, there's no logical reason why it opens up where it does other than we need some space between it and the tops of the buildings so there's fighting room for the chitari and tony yes i think you have just defined the height of plot yes which is which is fine it makes it harder to to defend right because it's higher up yeah not as many things that can reach get up there not even the hulk can jump again jump that eye to to punch yeah. him to, to close it out i don't know what he would do uh so makes it a bit easier to enter yeah, I mean, they could have, <laughs> he could have just pointed it at the top of the Chrysler building, <laughs> right? And have all the Chitari jumping out of the Chrysler building, but then they could have stopped it, uh, ideally, you know, potentially. Or have a some big reflector at the Chrysler building and then shoot it yes. to bring it back to London, maybe have a connection. So it's like, yeah, it's all, it all London is hosed uh, either way, is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, no, it has to be in London. <laughs> But I also think the beam is just straight shooting up uh, towards the, I uh, guess, civilization where the Chitari live. Because later on, when we get the moment with Tony blasting through, then um, he shoots it straight up and it goes straight to the civilization. So I feel like it's probably yeah. just like a straight line up to there. Yeah. But again, it's like they're not even at their, uh, quote, home, whatever the Chitari home is. Like they're just out in the middle of space waiting for this call from the 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 beam they're just sitting there like okay eventually we're going to have a hole that opens in front of us and we're just going to go through it it's just it's so strange do you think do you imagine them just sitting there like looking around like where's the hole going to come from right like, like i kind of came... imagine how yeah how would they know from where they are sitting in the blackness of space where the hole will be right it could have been behind them yeah or under them or over them or in the middle of them it could have been in the middle of them oh andy grueling line of inquiry <laughs> can we talk about the shot that it cuts back to uh iron man uh the hud the hud let's talk about that this is my favorite part because it turns out jarvis in iron man's face is like uh nissan starting up 
All the new cars have the HUDs. When you change them into race mode, everything goes red. And this was it. And I actually did some looking on what was going on in 2012 in terms of instrument gauge clusters. And nobody had really enthusiastically adopted digital gauge clusters yet. They had adopted screens between gauge clusters or gauges, uh, but they still had a traditional tack, traditional speedo, like all those things were still mechanized. It, with a screen in between, and the screen, the degree to which the the screen was curved and integrated into the gauge cluster itself was the degree to which you paid more for the car. But there were, it was not long after that, that there was an aftermarket company that started releasing replacement gauge clusters, which seems like an incredibly terrifying thing to do to a car from a safety perspective to me. I can't imagine ripping out the gauge cluster and replacing it with an all digital gauge cluster and computer system, but it was very, very cool. And after that, many, many uh, automobile manufacturers started replacing entire instrument panels with with the actual, you know, needle-refined but graphic interface, um, which is what Tony's HUD feels like to me. He switches to combat mode. Everything goes from blue to red. Gauge clusters. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> it's definitely a look that is noticed uh, as he's looking at it, because everything does have, as you just said, a very blue... Uh, peacetime look, I guess we'll just yeah. call it, then shifting everything. And it's interesting how it's almost like a big swipe, almost like Jarvis, like it is. just puts a spin on the whole HUD, everything That's shifts over we, and it all becomes red. Yeah. Stark clean energy interface to Stark yeah. sparkle battle mode interface. That's what I'm imagining. <laughs> I like also in this that you actually, if uh, the, the trick with these views of the HUD is everything's reversed so it's harder to read but you can see guided micro projectiles uh, with a little map of all the, yeah. the missiles that he has in his shoulder um, showing up on there which is kind of cool so he's already getting those ready uh, as he gears up to go um, you know take on the Chitari as they start coming through this uh, this rip in the sky yeah I think it actually says like 24 so it's probably like 24 missiles that he ends up launching yeah Right, uh, yeah. It when it when it opens in his shoulder, it looks like twenty nine. So oh. sometimes I do wonder, like when it comes between different departments doing these kind of this the work on the CG with these things, if there's if there is uh, communication errors as far as like how many, uh, like how many are on here. What do we say versus like the department that's actually later actually doing the suit and they're like well we have room for a little more should we put more in here yeah sure like i wonder if there's constant communication between them and then you have to wonder like some of the conversations as it relates to this sort of thing is probably uh boils down to is the audience really going to notice do we need to worry about this mm -hmm. uh, because it's going to happen so quick and, you know, they weren't thinking about movies by minutes, uh, analyzing inscrutably every uh, every moment of detail. But it does make me wonder, you know, eventually it hits a cost perspective where it's like, is it worth going in and changing that? Nah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's something I noticed in sequence as well. Not the amount of thing. <laughs> didn't count the missiles yeah. as it was playing. But uh, just uh, the focus depth there is like so shallow, but it's still kind of it's like rounded in a sense so it's oddly in focus for like all of those missiles and then the rest of it is really out of focus and i feel like it, to me it just looks a bit off 
Uh, so that like that really that small little moment always kind of stood out to me when when it opens and it's a showcase of like those little tiny missiles launching and it it looks it looks like little it it looks almost like it's uh, alive the way that they pop out and then the, <laughs> I don't know to, to me it was always something really uh, just big tiny little um tiny little uh, Tony Starks that go out and boom explode <laughs> tiny little <laughs> that would be awesome if he made each of those look like a little tiny Iron Man flying out I mean what I, would and be, I wouldn't put it past I him. think <laughs> down the line he should just replace his eyes with like digital versions so because his screen is so close to his face why not have like the whole eye be taken over by uh, one of his uh, nanobots and it just like goes in and does that as well and he just becomes fully uh, android at one point integrated yeah yeah that's fantastic i would love to imagine the world where tony's gotten to a point where he's like i'm just gonna put my put these nanobots in my eyes so i can always be on <laughs> yes they extend from his eyes out oh my god it is the next step right because he's got jarvis in his glasses already yeah right yeah, and he's always wearing the suit. It's all integrated into his uh, yeah. whatever he's wearing now. So yeah, and he will kill it on TikTok because uh, you know there was <laughs> filters where you can change your eye color. I'm really in, and he could just do that with anything. He could make it purple, and I think it would be really popular with uh, the young, the young audiences, <laughs> the young people oh in the MCU world. Oh, that's so funny. This movie would be so different if it had been made after TikTok, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we get uh, MySpace in the first yeah, Iron right, Man movie right, that he's talking right. about. So. Oh my gosh, so funny. They learned a lesson to not include anything anymore, right? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Until Fortnite. Right, exactly. But, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I want to ask a, a, a serious question uh, of both of you as <laughs> we're getting you. started. Well, uh, we'll see. As we're getting started with this actual Battle of New York, as it is dubbed in the films, what do you two think? Uh, this is, you know, by the time this movie is coming out, it's 2012, May 2012. It is over a decade from September 11th in New York. What do? How does it play? Uh, using New York City as the backdrop for a massive post nine eleven attack, is there uh, like is that something that ever crossed your mind as like uh, why didn't they pick a different city or anything like that or or the scope of it could they have changed it in some way so it didn't feel like a, an attack on a giant building? Is that something that that came up at all in your thinking with this film? I'm actually interested, even in your perspective on this, as somebody who does not live uh, close to New York. I was also three years old when it happened. So, also because you were three years old. Yeah. So, (laughs) yes. Uh, um, I think it's something that I associate a bit more when I think about Spider Man, uh, because that initial Spider Man film from Sam Raimi did have uh, the towers in there still, right? So they did the reshoots. And here, I think the city has kind of, at least in the movie sense, kind of grown past that being really relevant uh but the resilience of the people of new york is still kind of a a motif that is referred back to but i feel like it's also way more in spider-man than it is with like the avengers uh but i i didn't really think about it to be honest um yeah as as this was happening yeah okay i'll give you the i'll give you the three-year-old uh the past sense memory okay yeah (laughs) i you know i i'll i i'm 
I'm sh- I know I thought about it and uh because it's it's hard not to think about it and I think for for those of us who who you know were older than 3 and sort of bore witness to it in real time uh it, it's not something that just falls uh, away when you see the the skyline of the city and the impact that it has had on you know so many decades of of our lives of growing up with the city looking like this and now knowing how it turned into something different. And I but but I all I could think about was, can you imagine picking another city? uh, Let's just say you want to keep it in the in the United States. Yeah, London. But so interestingly, London is another city you could have done something like this to because London is a city that has a legacy of resilience to it, right? Like there are other cities in the world that you could have done that to, but I don't think you could have done it in any other city in the United States and not have the, because there's the whole New York strong vibe. Like this is in many respects, the blockbuster answer to 9-11, right? Like here we are a decade later, look what we can do now because we are, these are the avenging angels of our better nature, right? We can stand up to these kinds of things. So there is something of a sentiment of a vibe to that like like can you imagine like oh my god the chitari are over boise idaho what are we gonna do <laughs> well i mean if if anything it would be something like la which certainly would make more sense for tony because that's where in yeah. the films at least he is based yeah but there is this um i, I don't know I, I agree with ewan that that New York strong vibe seems much more prevalent to the Spider-Man films than this film at all. Like this film doesn't bring it up once like, uh, like you see in the Spider-Man films. This film is just people in New York fleeing from the attacks and, and stuff like that. And, and it's not that same vibe that you get. So I don't think I read it that kind of that New York strong. So to that end, I think it could have been any other city and I don't think it would have really made too much of a difference. But to your point, you probably wouldn't pick something like Boise. It would be like L.A. Yeah, L.A. has been destroyed so many times. It's like, okay, it's like not even a joke anymore. It's not even funny. L.A. is just L.A. has been burned and rebuilt in movies <laughs> so many times. Uh, so but but it's Denver interesting maybe. because Denver maybe needs to burn a little bit. Well, but it's interesting because Feige actually said it was, quote, very important that it was New York City. Yeah. Um, and so it just, it makes me think that he was going for that very specific emotional connection uh, for people. Right. It's just because interesting look, that it's not in the film at but all. But look at where it is. Like, it may, you may not feel that vibe directly as I do in this film, but the the rest of the movies after this like have the exact same kind of battle of New York. We survived vibe that we saw for the decade after nine 11 and still see, right? Like they, the, this essentially is the MCU nine 11 that the rest of the movies get to process in terms of grief later. Well, and yeah, maybe that's what he was playing with, but that uh, it, to a certain extent, I mean, I, I feel like there's something that's a little tacky with kind of using it that way. And I just wonder if there was, um, I don't know. I guess in the scope of alien invasions, is there a better way to do it? I don't really know, but yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things. I think some people probably feel it more than than others and uh but I do think that there is a, an element there that um you know, I I I don't know. I just imagine that people in New York who uh very specifically were there lived through it. I do always wonder with films like this if it's something that they just don't even want to watch because it's depicting something that's that feels so 
using kind of all that that pain and grief in a way that's just for popcorn. Well, it's just for popcorn. But I mean, again, I, I don't actually have a problem with the the grieving parts of future MCU movies. Like, I, I think some of those are actually done really well. And when you talk about particularly, you know, the the recovery of the snap later, like that, that's a part that I think the MCU does does notably well. So I'm, I'm kind of OK with it, planting the seed here by keeping it in New York. Even though I think the Battle of Boise has better alliteration. Uh, Battle of Tacoma? No, that doesn't really fly. Battle of... The Battle of Baton Rouge. Battle of Baton Rouge! That would have been cool. See, then you could have thrown Gambit into the movie, too. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Enough of your serious questions. (laughs) <laughs> All right. So what do you two think of the Chitari, the way that their, the, their chariots operate? So the way that they are, they work, there's the pilot who doesn't use their hands. It's in the way that it's actually described is that they're like fused into it, which is an odd way to describe it. But basically they're standing there and they've got like those shoulder holsters or like shoulder I don't know, slings that they're, that are sitting on top of their shoulders. And then they steer it, I guess, just by moving. And then there are two gunners on the back and they, each of the gunners actually has a forearm gun in which their arm is inside. Um, I mean, what do you think? Do you like the way that, that these chariots look and operate? Man, motion controls were really popular at the end of the 2000s. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) even, even for in the Tatari world, the Wii was really big. Uh, the Wii was huge. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially a glorified flying uh, Wii Fit where you get to stand on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the design. That's what they've been doing while yeah. they've been waiting yeah. the whole time. <laughs> it's just like you get a you get a deleted scene where they just play tennis and it just flops <laughs> where the portal is supposed to show up. But I, I like how the idea yeah. of like cutting to like a Chitari gun sticking into a TV, like they just let go of it. <laughs> yeah, they do because the they didn't have a sling on their wrist, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I like the Chitari design, uh, I guess. But uh, you know, my my problems with it, uh, with with the Chitari in general, is that the the sort of Geigerfication of their whole their whole getup is. Um, it might be just a little bit too alien for me. And at the same time, there are so many and they happen, they come through so fast, but they just feel almost like they're from a different movie, right? That portal opens up from a different film uh, and, and brings in these creatures that just feel to me like they're, they're, you know, they're just not, they're not in this movie and the battle is great, but they're disposable. Like they're just as, but they're here for Hulk to smash and for Hawkeye to shoot uh, unlimited arrows. And it's, it's fine. I mean, they're fine, but uh, they're, they're not my favorite alien creature for sure. You're much nicer to them than I am. I just, I really think the look is just so hard to figure out. Like, what am I looking at? I can tell that it's a a humanoid shape, but like, I can never tell, do they actually have a face? Is it a helmet they're wearing? Like, it's so in, uh, just kind of indecipherable when I look at them. I just can't get a good read on it. And, you know, they've got, kind of got armor 
and uh, just their weapons and stuff. And it's like, are they robots? Like, I've never... This is one thing I just really struggle with. Like, the Chitauri seem like something that they just came up with because they just needed a big army. Mm -hmm. Like, that's really all they are. And they very specifically, deliberately chose to not do something that was in the comics. In fact, we've already talked about how the Chitauri... It's name only like they they the Chitari in the Ultimates were shapeshifters that, you know, ended up financing the Nazi regime when they were trying to conquer Earth. Like it's this whole thing that doesn't relate at all. They took the name and made it this totally different thing. And I am just not a fan. It's just so uh, just, just it's just a bunch of like pixel army is what we basically that, have. There. And I just, it's a yeah. pixel army. That's what it is. And. I just, I just don't. I think they could have done something a little more interesting, but they, they really are, Andy. They are the answer to the question in the production meeting. To okay, we need something for our Avengers to fight, right? Like yeah. they are the yeah. intentionless kind of like we need an army, and and that's it's the simplest low hanging fruit answer. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, you know, but you know, we get to and we get one roaring. We, you know, we do get that. We get to hear one of them. There's a roaring here, so we do know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we've got a roar. Our, our, That's a whole class of Chitari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the last of us. Some of them click maybe you, even. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I want some of these that click. Oh, oh God. So man. <laughs> I I will say though, like the as this minute ends, we get like this we get a shot that defines why the portal, the blue beam does what it does because this is a really cool wide shot over New York City. I think it's awesome. I also absolutely love uh going back a little bit to I think second 5657. We have one of those awesome Return of the Jedi like uh, battle fights where it, it, I always say Return of the Jedi fights because it's when the Millennium Falcon's coming in and you have all the TIE fighters coming at the same time and that fractal uh, coming right at the camera. That's what this feels like to me. You have some explosions, but it's all the trails of all the projectile weapons that are flying around into that cone down, uh, looking down as Tony's flying up toward the toward the Chitari portal. I think that's an incredibly cool shot. I love that shot. So you know, while the the Chitari themselves are are the anonymous army, it's kind of fine because I really celebrate them as a backdrop to let the to let the battle play out uh, against them, which is which is sort of okay. Like you know what that that's that's fine. I like the hero moments that this gives us, and and some of the design shots are poster worthy. Yeah, uh, and I, I suppose that's really kind of where we're left. Is like there are some fantastic shots through this. Like I also love the one where. Iron Man is flying vertically, like straight up, but he's positioned in the frame horizontally. And you have New York, the the cityscape behind him um, on its side as he's kind of flying. I'm like, there are really cool moments through all of this. And I, I guess that's where the strengths lie in a lot of this, especially as this battle is just getting started, is in the way that we're constructing these images that do feel very much like from the pages of a comic book. Yes. I do have a bit of a gripe with this moment, though, because uh, the explosions (laughs) are really orange. And it's not really how that would work in an exposure sense. And it's fine if it's, like, stylized to me. But the beam is, is, is done right, where it's, like, blue on the outside, but then really bright on the inside. And I just... We want to get the detail from the flame, but we also get the blue beam you can't have all of it at the same time. 
So like, to me, it breaks, <laughs> it breaks the realm of physics a bit too much where like, as soon as something gets too orange and ex- an explosion, I like, oh, I notice and it takes me out a bit. But I, I agree. It's just like a burst of energy just all across the screen. And I, I like the lateral movement of him like shooting through, through the, through the frame as well. And what, what we're doing with this minute is really kind of setting up this entire inv- invasion, which is kind of cool. You get, as you said, Pete, the very last frame of this minute, the beam is, is shooting up off the top of Stark Tower off screen, off the top edge of the screen. And you just see all these little dots of the Chitari's uh, chariots as they're kind of descending now from the hole down out to start their invasion of uh, New York City. Yep. Yeah. All right. Good minute. Well, let's wrap it up for today. Uh, Ewan, thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Remind us again about your podcast and what you're up to with Lachlan over there. And, and you know what you should do as you remind us about that? How the heck did you guys hook up? Oh, well, that's that's a bit of a longer story. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if you got time for that in this minute. Uh, but we just studied film together, film production at the uh, uh, east coast of Australia in uh, at the Gold Coast. And he's from Perth. I'm from Zurich, Switzerland. And then we, and in order to keep in touch, uh, we always talked about movies, started this podcast uh, late 2019 and just kind of went from there and never stopped. That's kind of uh, how that came to be. And we're seeing each other for the first time since 2018, uh, 20, no, since 2019. Um, yeah, tomorrow actually for me right now. So this is great moment for me. That's fantastic. Yeah. So much fun. So much fun. That's awesome. But yeah, you can find us on uh, the podcast uh, podcatcher apps. You can find us on YouTube. Uh, uh, podcast is a video podcast now. And uh, yeah, follow every, <laughs> everything over there. We do heaps of content all around film and TV. Yeah, it's great stuff. Lots of fun. Uh, I had a fun time chatting with you about some, some of my favorite animated films a little while back. Yes. Yeah, good stuff. So check that out, everybody. The links will be in the show notes. Remember, if you're not seeing them there, then just check our website, marvelmovieminute.com, and you can get everything there. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Minute 104. So, Pete, thanks as always. Tomorrow, Andy, what happened to the waitress? <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>